I'd ask all my uh, Christian brothers and sisters here today, what is it that you expect out of your Christian life? What do you expect your Christian life to look like? Let me say it in a different way. If you were to attempt to prepare a brand new believer in your life, maybe someone even that you helped hear the word of God, observe them respond in faith and begin a relationship with Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior, what might you then say to equip them in the rest of their Christian life? What expectations would you lay out for that new brother or new sister? I think this is important because as people, we all have expectations of what life is going to look like, whether we can articulate those things or not. And you probably know that when things don't go as expected, we often respond very wrongly. Having a right view of what's coming as much as we can is incredibly helpful and I would say even important for us. I believe that we're going to get a bit of that answer today in the text that we're in in Hebrews chapter 4. If you have your Bibles with you, go to Hebrews chapter 4. If you're unfamiliar with uh, the Bible and its ordering and how things are set up, or if uh, you didn't bring your Bible with you, I'm going to have the pertinent text up online. I'm having trouble clicking this here. I'm going to go ahead and uh, try to make sure that you can see the text that we want you to see today. I'm going to read through the portion that we're in today. That's verses 1 through 11. We're going to go through 1 through 11. I'm going to pray and then go back through as we typically do about a verse or two at a time and uh, take what we can and ask God to help us. So let's read and then pray. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we seek your help in understanding a text that I think, although clear, um, feels cumbersome in its language, perhaps. 
Father, help us to see this in our own eyes, of course, but perhaps through the eyes of the audience who would have first received it, that we may see it more clearly. Lord, not only do we ask for clarity, we don't only desire an intellectual knowledge of what is meant by these words, we desire for that knowledge, that right knowledge of what you're saying here, to impact our hearts, that we would know you more and love you more, that we would know ourselves more, that we would trust ourselves less and put more of our confidence in you. Lord, that's a supernatural ask, as always, when we come to your word each Lord's Day morning, and so we appeal to you once again for the same help that we do each week. Enlighten our eyes, open our hearts to this truth, and help it to mean something to us all the rest of this week and for the rest of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Going back to the first verse again that we're in, chapter 1, verse 11. I might need help today. I'm sorry. I don't know what's wrong with the clicker here. Verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, right off the bat, if you're reading something and you see the word therefore, it's helpful just to acknowledge that what the author's about to say is not independent of what's come before. So it would be helpful for us to have an idea of what came before, And because of the way we typically go through passages of the Bible, one verse at a time, and in order, if you'd been with us in the past few weeks, you'd know that we just covered a text where the author is warning his audience to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, to, to not let unbelief creep in, to stay focused on the truth, to take care to not fall away, these kind of things. He's warning his audience, and he's using an Old Testament psalm to do that. In much the same way that right now, I would like to use this verse to do what it's designed to do, to warn you, to keep you in the faith, the text here is being used by the author of Hebrews in the same way. He's drawing on a Bible passage and using it to help his audience. He says next that, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, that's the first thing he states here, he's citing Psalm 95. For those of you who are trying to figure out where this is from, this is Psalm 95 in the Old Testament, which refers to the people of Israel during the time of Moses. They were brought out of Egypt to the border of the promised land, but they would not enter as God had instructed them to enter. They were afraid of the enemies that they would face there, and so they refused to do what God had told them to do. And so uh, in verse 11 in the chapter previous, the text says of God speaking, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So, So what is the rest? What is the promise of entering his rest here as it regards Psalm 95? Well, most immediately, we imagine the rest of entering the promised land, don't we? In fact, back in Deuteronomy 12, verse 9, Old Testament passage tells us about the way that uh, they viewed entering into the promised land. For you have not as yet, I'm sorry, for you have not as yet come to the rest. 
and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. He's going to go on to say, you will enter that rest, and when you get there, I'm going to tell you where to build this temple and how you're going to have peace with me. So God had a plan that they were going to enter into rest in the future. And while they were outside the promised land, they were not yet in the rest. So it was pretty clear to the people that that was to be considered a place and a time of rest. This is further evidenced by the fact that the immediate effect of not entering the rest was heading back out into the wilderness. In other words, because the people refused to enter in, God said, fine, no rest for you. He sends them to the wilderness. So first and foremost, we see that most immediately, that entering of that rest must have been thought of as going into the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land that would eventually become Israel. However, both David, who's the author of Psalm 95, and the author of Hebrews right here have in mind something more than just Canaan, than just that land, than just that particular geographical region. And they include future audiences, including us, into this promise. Now, it seems that the author of Hebrews anticipates an objection to this statement. And it seems that way because in just a few verses, he labors to prove the statement. He labors to prove the statement that the promise of entering his rest still stands. You will remember that the Jewish people during the days of the, Old, of the New, Testament, New Testament, during the writing of the book of Hebrews, during the lifetime of Jesus and of the apostles, the Jewish people then often had far too narrow a view of the Old Testament. Give me a few examples. They could not imagine salvation being offered to Gentiles. You might remember that if you look at the New Testament. They were, whoa, 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 whoa. Salvation would go to those people? That was really confusing them. They couldn't see that in the Old Testament, even though it was all over the place there. Maybe, maybe most primarily, we realize that they could not imagine a Messiah who did not immediately conquer the land and overthrow the political national enemies of Israel. They had a very narrow idea of what the Old Testament texts like those were telling them. I think that this text implies that a Hebrew reader might have read this line, the line of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, and then objected, saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. That promise is not for us. That promise was for those people back in that day of Moses. So therefore, that warning is not for us. It's for them. And I think the author is going to deal with that objection. And we're going to get to that response in, in turn. He's going to get there in just a few verses. But first, let's see how the author is about to apply the warning to us. So back, back to verse 1, you'll see that he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Let us fear. So what does this mean? I want you to follow the text with me here. We are being commanded to fear so that we will not seem to have failed to reach it, it being the rest of God. Fear so that we will not seem to have failed to reach it. I think the language is cumbersome here. It took me a long time to 
pull the words apart and try to see what, what, is he, what is he meaning here. In other words, our fear in this regard, this kind of fear being instructed, is useful to us in preserving our faith and in attaining God's rest. And some might ask, fear? He's telling us to be afraid. Aren't we to have courage? Aren't we the ones who are supposed to not fear? Not live in fear? And in some sense, yes, of course. In fact, back in chapter 2, verse 15, uh, we'll see this image to us. Hebrews 2, 15 tells us that Christ died to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So, so what does Christ's coming accomplish in this verse? The rescue out of the fear of death. The kind of fear of death that brings us into lifelong slavery. The slavish fear of death. So certainly there's a kind of fear we are, we are rescued out of. We do not fear the things the world fears. And however, you and I would know that the whole Bible gives us commands like it does in Proverbs 9, 10, instructions and tells us things like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We'll read in the New Testament, Jesus telling us, don't fear the one who kills the body but can't kill the soul. But then Jesus says, but fear the one, God, who has the power to kill the body and the soul in hell. He tells us to fear God. Philippians 2.12, the Apostle Paul will tell us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I want you to consider Romans 11. I'm going to put this verse up for you a moment. The context of Romans 11 is very similar to what we're seeing right here in Hebrews chapter 4. The Apostle Paul is showing us that the, faithful, the faithlessness of the Israelites in the Old Testament resulted in them being pruned out of receiving the benefits of God's promise. And so this is what he says. He says, that is true. They, the Israelites in the Old Testament, were broken off because of their unbelief. See how similar that is to what's going on in Hebrews 4? But you, but you, believer, hearer of these words, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud. We're not like those Israelites, but fear. Some might ask, well, hold on. Isn't a life of fear crippling? Isn't it, isn't it horrible, the idea of being afraid all the time? I recently heard this illustration from a pastor, John Piper, that I found very helpful regarding the same idea. We, we taught our children to not run into the street. And what do you think we, we did to try to make that promise stick, that, that command, that instruction stick? We've explained to them, if you run into the street... You could get hit by a car. You could die. Bad things could happen. You stay out of the street. You should be afraid of running into the street because you could die. Now, does that mean that every time my kids go outside to play, they are terrified? Do they look out the window? Oh, there's a street out there. No. They play without even thinking about that particular fear all the time until the ball rolls into the street. And then they go, whoa, whoa, wait. Street could mean death. You, you see that? It doesn't mean that that fear of the street cripples their life. But the fear of the street does exactly what it's supposed to do, keeps them out of it. I found that a helpful, helpful illustration. In a similar way, we are to fear unbelief. Fear God. 
To make this even clearer, what the text is saying, I want you to consider that text, that verse, the other way around. If you don't fear, it will seem, it will seem that you have failed to reach God's rest. The person who lives with a flippant disregard for warnings like this will seem to have failed to enter God's rest. The fear of the Lord and the subsequent fear of unbelief are indelible marks of a true believer. Moving on to verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So what does the parallel the author means to draw between the Old Testament Israelites and us? That we both heard a message. It's even called here good news. Some of you probably know, what's the word good news in the New Testament? What's What's that Greek term? It's evangelion. And, and what do we typically use as the word to refer to that? Gospel. That's the same word here. For good news, for gospel came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. It did not benefit them. Why? If we both heard truth, the message from God, the promise that we can enter his rest through faith. Why is it that they did not benefit from that word? I'm going to do a quick note for you here, because if you have a a study Bible in front of you, or a Bible that gives notes, maybe a center column or footnotes or something like that, it's likely that you have a little note there that points you down to a line that says something like it does in my Bible. Some manuscripts say it did not meet with faith in the hearers. So that line, the message they heard did not benefit them because the line, they were not united by faith with those who listened. It might be, we're not certain, but it might be that the text originally said it did not meet with faith in the hearers. I'm dealing with this just because you might have that text in there and I don't want it to off-ramp you from what's going on. So consider the meanings of what the text could look like. Just follow along with me here. It could mean that the message needed faith in order for it to be effective. And that's not hard to understand, right? You heard something, but you ought to have faith for it to take root, for it to have any effect at all. Hearing something without the faith to do anything with it is useless, no benefit. That could be one way. That makes tons of sense, right? It also could mean, though, that those who heard without faith were not united with those who heard with faith. I want you to picture what happened at that time. We covered a little bit of this last week. But when the Israelites got to the promised land, the border of it, they were at a city called Kadesh Barnea, or a region. It would become a bigger city eventually. They sent out 12 spies, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Of the spies who returned, 10 of them did not believe God that they could take it over. And two of them did believe God that they could take it over. They both observed the same things. They both went to the same places. They both heard the same message. But 10 said, we don't believe God, and 2 said, we do believe God, okay? The 10 who did not believe in God were not united in faith with those who did believe God. You you following that? The reason that I don't think this particular textual variant is super significant 
is because in either case, the point is the same, is it not? The point is the same. Without faith, hearing God's words do not benefit us. Without faith, hearing God's words do not benefit us. You and I could sit under faithful gospel preaching for decades, but if we do not believe it, it will not benefit us. Notice, I did not say it would have no effect. The Word of God will do precisely what it is supposed to do, but it will not profit the hearer if there is no faith. He continues on, For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished, from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. A few things. He starts by saying, for we who have believed enter that rest. Have believed. We enter God's rest by believing his word. That's the entrance. That's how we get the rest. Is through belief. But I want you to notice the tenses here. For we who have believed, past tense, we who have done that, have believed, enter that rest. Genuine belief is the kind that will heed warnings and will certainly persevere. I spent two weeks dealing with the kind of uh, matters that come up with that. Just the past several weeks, you can go back and check those sermons out or ask us. We love talking about it. But genuine belief is the kind that will persevere because it will heed these warnings. We who have believed, past tense, enter that rest. From this statement, the author will first take us back to creation to show that God's rest long precedes the conquest of Canaan. And then he'd work his way forward to show that the promise of that rest still remains for us today. It's a little bit interesting because we see Bible quoting Bible quoting Bible. You kind of get lost in the quotation marks if you're not careful. It's helpful to, to slow down and see what's happening here. But he's pointing back not only to what David said in Psalm 95, but while he's holding that, he's like, and let's look further back. Flip further back to Genesis. He goes back to Genesis 2 and he shows, look, God was resting on the seventh day. There was a rest that God had that he would invite us into that started way back then, long before the people came to the promised land and were getting to enter in. So there's already something bigger in mind. Now he's going to move a little farther forward, past the days of Moses, past the days of that generation who stood at the Jordan River. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So the author points out, that while Psalm 95 tells the Israelites during the generation of Moses, David, who wrote that psalm, came much later, four centuries later, in fact, 
And yet he is telling his audience that there is still a rest available. This isn't really hard to understand if you just kind of think about the way that the author is using the text. It might be similar to, to me saying something like, or a person today saying something like regarding our country and our freedoms of our nation, our independence. It might be like somebody quoting George Washington during the Revolutionary War days and, and taking quotations about the importance of fighting for independence then and saying, we today should still fight for our independence. It might be like that. He refers to this time as today. Today. It was referred to that in David's day. And it is referred to that in the author of Hebrews' day. A thousand years later, they're still saying today. And the author of Hebrews is using it for his audience as we use it for ours. So what's the point? The kind of rest that we see here is bigger than geography. And it is offered to more than one generation of people. Remember earlier, I had said, I think that somebody might have tried to object and go, no, that's God's that's God rest just for promised land, just for people in Moses' generation. And he's using these paragraphs to go, no, we're talking about something bigger than that. Even David, four centuries later, is saying that rest is still available, right? That's the point. He's proving, look, the scriptures tell us, the Old Testament even tells us that the promise of rest was bigger than just geography. The rest of God is far bigger than a peaceful home on earth. They wanted fruit and meat. They wanted milk and honey. That's what they fixated on. The borders of Israel, a place that they could have as their own. No more dust. But God had far more in mind for his people. So follow this. Therefore, their unbelief had far greater consequences than just wandering in a desert. Do you know what we see in the Israelite wandering years? We go back and observe them. What do we see? Do we see faithful Israel in a repentant state for 40 years? Lord, we, we, we receive this burden because of our guilt. We fix our eyes on you. And no, we don't see that. What do we see? Whining complaining, not repentance. Not only did they miss the point before they were barred from entering the promised land, they missed it after. The great tragedy of that generation was not that they died in the desert, but that they did not believe in their God. That was the tragedy. Wednesday morning men's study we're reading through the book of Genesis going slowly through we got to the part Genesis 3 the fall sin enters into the world Adam and Eve because of their sin are removed from the garden a place of peace and a place where they were in the presence of God and they were put into the world that was filled with thorns and thistles But those thorns and thistles were not the greatest loss for Adam and Eve. 
no longer being in the presence of God was the great loss. Our sins have caused a separation between us and God. That's the problem. That's what unbelief carries on. We are looking forward to a much more ultimate promised land. Something much bigger, something much greater. I want you to ask yourself for a second. Joshua, who would, who would be the, uh, the, the one who would follow Moses in the leadership of the people... He's the one who would finally bring that generation into the promised land. What did Joshua find when he entered the promised land? Would you and I call it rest? Conflict, war, blood, loss. We are looking forward to something much more permanent, much more perfect, much more ultimate and final. This is why the New Testament refers to the death of a believer as falling asleep. Because it speaks to the final rest we have in the presence of God in heaven. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his now, the question arises as to when Christians will obtain this Sabbath rest. Does the author have in mind right now, ah, oh, we're Christians, because we're believers, we now enter the rest of God? Or is he picturing something future? And the reason I think an orthodox view can hold to either of these is because some might say we right now rest from our redemptive work. We're not doing works in order to be saved. We rest in the goodness and glory of God and the forgiveness and mercy and grace that he has given to us. We rest in that way. Amen and amen. Yes, of course. And it must first certainly be settled that we cannot be justified by our works. So someone might go, well, because our works don't justify us, we're resting from any kind of work that we think could and that rest might be the Sabbath rest we're in right now. And just to make sure it could not be clear, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and then I'll read 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one is justified by any work that he or she does. But what does verse 10 say? The very next verse continues on, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus says that his disciples will do greater works than he, that we should let our good works shine before men. James even says that faith without works, same word, faith without works is dead. The Apostle Paul refers to his work of ministry as toil, labor, being poured out, wrung out for that labor. He tells us to greet the workers who have worked hard. Always the same word in Greek. Colossians 1.29, Paul would even say it like this, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
He even instructs pastors in Ephesians 4.12 to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And he even refers to the task of preaching as labor. Even in the book of Hebrews, in case there's any question or confusion, could this be in mind of the author of Hebrews? Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Hebrews 10.24, this is one you might remember, And let us consider how to stir one another up, to stir up one another to love and good works. This is all over the New Testament. The whole of the Christian life is to overflow with good works. We are not justified by our works, but a result of being justified leads us to do all that God has called for us to do. We are to be busy in this life with the work of God. We cannot in any way be saved by those works, but there is much work for us to do. We have not yet fully entered his rest. Revelation 14, 13 will say this, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. This is Christians who die. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. This is why it seems to me that this Sabbath rest is not referring to the kind of rest we experience in Christ today. There is a rest we experience like that. But I think that this text is telling us of the ultimate rest that we will have in heaven. And furthermore, this being a future rest, a looking forward rest, this is why in the next verse he can say this, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Strive to enter the rest. In other words, he's not saying remain in the rest that you already have. Strive to enter into it. Because we have not yet obtained it. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What is the same sort of disobedience? What was the disobedience of these Israelites? He said this several times already, last chapter and this chapter, unbelief. That's what they did wrong. They disobeyed God because they did not believe him. That's what the disobedience was. Everything that the author has been writing throughout this chapter so far, from verse 1 through verse 11, and I, I, th- I think going all the way back to chapter 3, verse 6, I think that's where you'd start the logical argument he's making here. Back to chapter 3, verse 6. Everything he's been saying back to there is being summarized right here in this verse. If you were like, oh man, there's lots going on here. What's the big point? Circle this one. This is what he's getting across. He's proving this point and each of the parts of it. That's what he's been doing. He's been proving each of these statements that we would take this seriously And take it to heart. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, by the unbelief, just like those Israelites back then. We wouldn't fall. We are not home yet. If we do not strive to enter that rest, we might fall like the Israelites. So I come back to the same question I asked at the beginning. What is it that you expect out of your Christian life? 
Do you expect that each day it should be war, labor, work, striving? Two points we've tried to make incredibly clear and that I've labored to show you in these past several weeks, maybe a month or so now, is number one, genuine faith perseveres. That God will certainly preserve every person who has believed. That a person cannot lose his or her salvation, to say it in language we talk about. And that God uses warnings like all of these texts to accomplish exactly what he wants for them too, to preserve us. Do you consider today labor, toil? Here's why this matters. For us to see that we have not yet obtained the final rest of God, that we will have the right expectations of what we will face in this life. The promise of entering God's rest still stands. This is the other beautiful truth that we see in this. The promise of entering God's rest still stands. For the person who does not know Jesus, who does not profess faith in our Lord, he tells us in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The doors are wide open. There is still today an invitation to enter into the rest of God. The gospel of God is that because we are sinners, we are deserving of his just wrath, and yet God sent his only son as a display of his love for us that anyone who would believe in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus was sent to live a perfect life. The only human on this planet who never deserved death by his works. You and I have all sinned, have fall, fallen short of the glory of God, deserving of his just judgment. We deserve death. He deserves life. But at the end of his life, Jesus offers this beautiful exchange that we may get his life and he may get our death. The death that we earned, the life that he earned. And the way that we get that, is it by work? Is it by the striving is it by obeying particular principles? It is by belief. Belief. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Put your faith in him. Do not underestimate the evil of unbelief. God calls it an evil, unbelieving heart that leads us to fall away from the living, of, living God. That's what it's called. Unbelief really is that bad. And this whole encouragement is because the author knows we need help believing. It's not just like breathing. It's going to be labor. And you're going to need brothers and sisters around you to help you in the battle of life, to keep you believing. You're going to need the word of God daily to work through that you may believe and continue believing. This offer stands. It remains until the final end. If anyone were to ask, why is it that God is taking so long and sending his son again? To conclude history, the answer is given to us in the New Testament. His patience is for our good. 
There are many people who have not yet entered into the kingdom through belief. And he will not come until all of his children are there. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved. Don't waste time. Don't do anything else until you get this squared away. Figure this out before you go home, before you eat, before you sleep again. Unbelief keeps us out of the rest of God. And belief secures us in it. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your perfect son, Jesus. We praise you that the gospel was preached to people throughout the ages. Lord, we praise you that your word benefits us by belief. Lord, help us to get this clear in our minds. Help us to never for a moment think that we have earned your favor, that we have done such good and worthy things that somehow we deserve to be saved. Lord, give us a real picture, an accurate view of who we really are. Father, for those who are needing encouragement today, I pray that this would come as a dear encouragement. But this would be an exhortation to believers to strive, to come together, to work hard, to labor, to believe, and to help others to believe, and to to keep others together, and to encourage every day, for as long as it is called today. So Lord, help us to do those things. Father, I pray for those who, who do not yet profess faith in Jesus Christ, that they would see the reality, that they would know unbelief will keep them out of the rest of God for forever. Separation from you for forever. This will, it will never get better than it is right now in eternity for a person who rejects you in unbelief. Father, we ask that you would do that. We ask that you would rescue people out of all kinds of different backgrounds and situations. You'd use us however you see fit to help a person along in understanding that. Give clarity and light on your scripture. Lord, help us to do exactly what the author of Hebrews does. He uses the Bible to explain things to people. Father, help us to do that. Help us to set our hearts on that. Help us to work hard today. Help us to work today while we can still sweat so that our rest will be that much more sweet, knowing that we invested our lives here for good ends, for your glory, to strengthen believers and to reach the lost. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.